The reality of the resurrection, it's incredible, isn't it? And we're so thankful that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That's an important and sure foundation in this time in which many of our other realities seem to be changing. Wouldn't you agree with that? Now, I suspect you're experiencing a Resurrection Sunday like you've never experienced before. Uh, I know I am. In fact, I feel like in some ways I've been zooming my life away for about three weeks now, right? And other things are happening and changing. And so we're asking this question often, how are we maneuvering and navigating in this current situation when things seem to be changing? Well, I like to remind you, God's church has uh, always adapted and adjusted to different disruptions and interruptions, whether cultural or societal, um, international. Uh, this is what God has enabled the church to do, to thrive in times of disruption, to be able to navigate different changing realities, even if they're temporary, because of a sure lasting reality. And that sure and lasting reality, which forms the foundation for every other reality, is the historical supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is recorded for us in Mark chapter 16 in the first eight verses. And I want to take some time this morning and just walk you through what the realities of the resurrection are from Mark's perspective. It's not a very long account. It's the shortest of all the gospel accounts, but it's packed with incredible insight. Let's take some time to read our text, shall we? And discover together some resurrection realities. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." I find three realities from the resurrection in these eight verses. Let's talk about them for a bit, can we? Here's the first reality. Christ died, was raised, and is alive. And this is speaking of the historical reality of the resurrection. Now remember, Mark goes to great lengths here to show at least two things. That Jesus Christ was dead and that Jesus Christ is now alive. In fact, notice in the text, especially the first six verses, the lengths to which he goes to prove this, to show this. It even begins before chapter 16, back in about verse 40 of, of chapter 15. He mentions several women. And then he repeats their names, of course, in chapter 16. In chapter 15, he talks about a centurion as well as Joseph. He locates, uh, he mentions his location. Uh, and then he talks about 
uh, the day of the week it was, the time of day. He mentions the fact of spices, the rituals they would go through. He talks about their emotions. He mentions the angel, what he was wearing, where he was sitting. All of these are markers, they're tags, they're evidences that what Mark is describing actually in time and space evidentially historically occurred. And so this is a reality that we have to grapple with. We have to rest on that. Yes, Jesus Christ died. He was raised and he is alive. There is incredible historical evidence that abounds for both of these. And so I want to encourage you, church, take your stand most assuredly on the real resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'd remind you that in this passage, though it's the shortest, there are incredible amount of what I call historical markers. And they are uh, affirmed by the other three writers, Matthew, Luke, and John. I'd encourage you to read Matthew 28, uh, Luke 24, and John 20. They give even more detail. They give additional names. They give places and, and um, different facts and logistical uh, items that really tell us clearly, factually, historically, that Jesus Christ died, was raised, and is alive. Uh, this just really speaks to the truth of the reality of the resurrection. Now, as you read the other accounts, you may find it somewhat difficult to piece all of it together in a singular timeline. Let me recommend a, a helpful resource to you. Stephen Kingsley's written a book called The Easter Answer. We've mentioned it here before. I find it quite helpful in taking all of the different narratives and piecing them together in a singular timeline that helps the, the entire Resurrection Sunday narrative just kind of flow. So pick that up. You can order it off Amazon. Call us here at the office. We'll see if we can locate it for you if you can't. But I find it to be a very helpful uh, resource, of course, as you take the gospel accounts of this historical fact of Christ's resurrection and then plant your feet on it. You know, Paul did this. He planted his feet on the resurrection and he gave much evidence for it as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses four through eight. He mentions, first of all, that, that the resurrection's part of the gospel. It's included in that, of course. But then he says this about the resurrection, that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then to more than 500 brothers at one time. What an incredible amount of witnesses who who were there personally. He says he appeared to James, to all the apostles, then to Paul. So Paul here looked at the appearances, the evidences, the proofs, as one of the, the major um, reasons to give great consideration to the overwhelming physical reality that Christ has been raised. Now, understand something. Evidence doesn't uh, save us. Faith in Jesus saves us. But evidence can bolster our faith. It doesn't create it. Only God grants it. But like I said, evidence can bolster our faith. And it bolsters our faith once God gives us faith through the word about his son. And by the way, this is what happened in this text. I love this, this line that can almost be missed. But look what it says that the angel said to the women in verse 7, that he's going before you to Galilee just as he told you. In fact, that's where you'll see him. And so they begin to remember back to what Jesus has said, his very own words. That's what produces faith is the message about Christ. Romans 10, 17 tells us this. So church, listen very carefully. Evidence matters, it's important, and it's there. But it only bolsters faith. It's God who creates and gives faith and through his grace saves us by that faith. And this is where they were in that moment. 
looking at the evidence around them and hearing the words and remembering the words of Jesus and then realizing, oh, so this is what he meant. And then their faith is alive and quickened. And this is also where every person on the planet comes to at some point. What will you do with the historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You see, the resurrection of Christ has affected the entire world. It's the overriding singular difference between Christianity and every other system of belief or religion. Tim Keller says this, the truth of the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. And so do not underestimate what we're seeing this morning, this historical time and space reality that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. They were facing that Every person on the planet faces that, and you are facing that today. Would you see the evidence of both the death and resurrection of Jesus? And if you've yet to trust Christ as your only Savior, if you've yet to put faith in Jesus as the only way to be forgiven of your sins, could I ask you right now, could I implore you to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe that he died was buried and was raised and is now alive, saving people from their sins. See, that's the way to have eternal life. That's the way to have your sins forgiven. And a, and a heart's cry to God of that fashion would sound something kind of like this. God, I do believe that you sent Jesus, your only son, to be fully man. And though he was fully God, he lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died the death I should have died and you raised him up to prove that he was the son of God. And so right now, God, would you save me through the life and work of Jesus? I repent and trust in Jesus alone as the only way to be saved. At that moment of repentance and faith, God will save you by his grace and through faith. Now I wanna remind you, it's not the evidence that saves you. It's faith in Jesus that saves you. But this evidence this morning is what bolsters our faith. And we realize we're not taking a blind leap. We're making an informed step of trust into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if this morning you have done exactly that, could I just ask you to text me the, that information to the number on your screen? Just, or call us. Simply say, today I have asked Jesus to save me. I've trusted in Christ as my personal savior. By God's grace and through faith, I now believe. We'd love to know that. We'll do all we can here at this church to help you understand the gospel and know and follow Jesus fully. You see, that's what we do week in and week out here. We celebrate the gospel. We follow Jesus. In fact, that is because of the resurrection. In fact, the reason that we meet in a gathered fashion, and admittedly, we're doing that somewhat differently now. But the whole reason we meet in a gathered fashion to begin with is because of the resurrection. The resurrection changed the day of worship from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. And as the church was birthed and they began to celebrate together, they met on that same day, the first day, to remember and commemorate and to celebrate Jesus being raised from the dead. And so what you're watching in our culture now, churches figuring out how to continue to meet together, how to kind of navigate these waters of, of um, uncertainty and, and disruption. Here's what we're doing. We are adjusting methods, but we are not neglecting the mandate because the mandate is, is really uh, driven by the resurrection. 
You're seeing the church now try to continue to find expressions of obedience to God's mandate driven by the resurrection. And I wanna urge you to put your feet overwhelmingly, plant them solidly right on the resurrection, the reality of Christ being raised from the dead. Because he was dead, he was raised, and he is alive. That's the historical reality we can live with. This reality, I think, is encapsulated best in what the angel says to the women when he says, he has risen. Now, most literally, that translates to he has been raised. And I think that's the most theologically accurate way to describe that. Um, that Jesus was raised by the Father. And this is necessary because Jesus' human body was dead. Now on the cross, Christ commended his spirit to the Father, but his body as a man went to the grave, so he was dead. So there was no way for Christ as a human to raise himself. And so the Father raised the Son, human body. And so more than a dozen times in the New Testament, we find this truth stated, such as Acts 2.32 here, which it says that God raised up Jesus, and this is what they were witnesses of. And like I said, more than a dozen times, we find this truth stated, that Jesus was raised by the power of the Father. And so when the angel says he is risen or he has been raised, it's the most succinct, clear way to simply say, here's the physical reality of the resurrection. God has raised Jesus. Now, often we... For the last several centuries in the Christian church, we've used this simple phrase to, to affirm this reality. We'll say, he is risen, and then someone will respond by saying, he is risen indeed. So this morning, can we just right here together just affirm this reality that we've seen, first of all, that Christ was, was dead but was raised and is now alive? Can we say together, he is risen, he is risen? I think I probably heard you, I'm not sure. But we affirm the reality that Christ has been raised. We thank the Lord for it. Notice the second reality too. A second reality is that, that God wasn't finished with the disciples. We see this in the phrase, going before you into Galilee. This is in verse seven, do you see that? I think this must have been an incredibly refreshing and hopeful note for those disciples to hear. Because I'd remind you, they were in a very devastated and even vulnerable position. Pastor Travis reminded us this week uh, about their vulnerability. We were meeting together as elders, like I mentioned last week, on Tuesday mornings. And this time we were Zooming together, but just reading through the scripture and praying. And he mentioned that they were in a very vulnerable state. In fact, he, he mentioned to us that the movement was in a very vulnerable state. And I think he made a real spot on observation uh, this was not a, a highlight in the movement's life in some sense. I mean, there's not a single optimistic disciple in the bunch. There's no one holding the rope saying, come on, guys, we're going to get through this. I mean, they're all expecting to see Christ dead. They come with spices. They're wondering how to get into the tomb. No one's really thinking he's going to rise. There's no real human hero here. And so what is it? that keeps Christianity intact in this most vulnerable moment. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that he was raised from the dead. It provides the power and the vision for their future. In fact, once Christ is raised, he then says, hey guys, I'll meet you in Galilee. And he makes a specific point to call Peter out by name. 
Isn't that a beautiful, encouraging, hopeful tone? Imagine being Peter. Imagine hearing from others that Jesus wants to see you. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Maybe you're thinking, you mean I'm not discarded? You mean I'm, I'm useful? There's hope? You, you mean there's, there's grace for the guilty? You mean God can still use a traitor like me? Well, this is uh, no doubt a time when Peter experienced conflicting emotions, but it had to be a, a beautiful uh, note in his ear, no doubt. Jesus isn't done with me. Now, he does say he'll meet them in Galilee, and I don't think that's an important note because Galilee is where they did a lot of ministry together. So it has good memories for these guys. And it's also, if you read John 20, where Jesus would let Peter know personally and specifically what the rest of his life would be like. It would entail feeding sheep. John 20 lays this out for us, but it also lays out for us that Jesus signified to Peter how he would die. So watch this. This had to be a hard conversation for Peter, no doubt. But you know what? This was a personal, reviving conversation for the one who had previously and voraciously denied Christ is now having this personal conversation. God's explaining to Peter, you're gonna be used to feed the church. You're gonna die for your faith. Man, Peter knew that God was not done with him. And this would not have been possible without the resurrection. You see, it's the resurrection that empowered Peter's victory over his past, over his failure, over his sin. Yes, the cross enabled his forgiveness, but the resurrection empowered his future. And this is true for you and for me as well. The cross enables our forgiveness, but the resurrection empowers our future. In fact, the resurrection is the reality that your entire life rests on. Your life doesn't rest on your successes or your failures. It rests upon Jesus's resurrection. And the, the power that you need to walk in a brand new life comes from the very power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. Look at Romans chapter six, verse four here. Look what Paul would say. You were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so God here is saying that the, the, the power to walk in newness of life comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is our truest spiritual reality, that Jesus has been raised and, and you can live in victory over your sins and in service to the king. That's our second reality. It's a spiritual reality. So we've seen two realities so far, a physical reality and a spiritual reality. Let's notice the third reality. And that's a missional reality. And it's this year that they were wonderful witnesses. Now, I want you to notice how we wrote this and how we say this, because this is important to understanding the point of the text. They were wonderful witnesses. Let me show you what I mean. I find this to be the, the most intriguing one. I love this one. Based on the two words used in verse eight, trembling and astonishment. In fact, the Bible says that this had seized the women. It had gripped them. The word trembling here is used also in Mark to describe the woman who touched Christ's garment. 
then he knows that happens, so he calls for this person. He says, who touched my garment? And the scripture says in Mark 5 that she came trembling. In other words, in reverential fear and awe. The word astonishment used in Mark 6 to describe the disciples' reaction when Christ calmed the sea, stilled the waters, that they, they just couldn't believe that this was happening. It's amazement. So what we're seeing here essentially is fear and awe in the presence of the supernatural. And let's be very honest here and frank. This is expected. I mean, if it were you and you were in the presence of the supernatural, you would, be, uh, you would expect to be in reverential awe and fear. And yet it's also unexpected in the sense that it overcomes you suddenly. And so you're left without words. But I can guarantee you that in time, this kind of wonder, it eventually does lead to words. Wonder always leads to the right kind of witnessing. The truth is, and we know this to be true, you talk about what you love. Now we know this is the way human nature works. Just think about when you first saw or met the person you're now married to. There was that overwhelming emotion, perhaps after a number of dates or a, a little bit of time, you, you just had to tell somebody because your wonder and, and, and your uh, amazement, your love was gonna come out in your words. Three of our four kids are married and I can go to specific conversations that I had with each of them and Julie can too. With the person they're now married to, they would often call or, or they'd be there in person and they would talk about it questions and, and projections about the future. It just would come out of them. They couldn't help but talk about it. You see, this is what's happening here. We eventually share what we hold dear. And when we're filled with wonder about something, it simply drips from our lips. Now, this is what's occurring here. It's the process of moving from wonder to words. Now, I want to make sure we understand the text correctly. Because if you just read Mark alone, you may think, well, they never moved to words. That's not true. When Mark says that they left afraid and didn't tell anybody, he's not saying they didn't tell anybody ever. He's simply saying they didn't tell anyone on their way to tell the disciples. This is where bringing in Matthew 28 helps as well as Luke 24. We see the women initially not saying anything, but they did tell the disciples who didn't believe them and they go back they realize it's true, and so then they're all kind of silenced in wonder for a bit. But eventually, the whole group does come around, and their wonder leads to words. Let me prove it to you. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Look at this exciting verse about these early disciples. And I love the way Luke here mentions the name uh, of, of some of the folks who were there. He says that these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This is after the Lord ascended. He said to go to Jerusalem. They'd been with him 40 days. They're now waiting in Jerusalem. And by the way, you don't pray to someone you don't worship and adore and revere and fear. So they're praying. Here's Mary, the women, others, the brothers, they're all together. And on the heels of this, Pentecost occurs. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit from the Father. They're given the spiritual gift of tongues. And there at Pentecost, every nation on earth was represented. And so the Bible says that in known languages, these folks begin to share the gospel. Peter stands up and preaches. And that's the beginning of world evangelization. In fact, as Acts closes, we see the gospel getting to the known world at that time. So I can assuredly say to you, 
their wonder, which left them speechless initially, it turned to words. And over a period of about 30 to 40 years, the known world had heard of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the best word for this, I believe, for this kind of process that occurs, especially the beginning phases, is the word dumbfounded. Now, don't be offended by that word, all right? It simply means I can't find the words to say. And so you're, you're dumbfounded. You're left speechless. But I've also discovered this and believe wholeheartedly that when we are dumbfounded rightly, it will lead to sure-footedness. You see, when, when we have the right kind of wonder, the right kind of fear, it will move our feet to speak the right kind of words. And so I surmise something from this church. Listen very carefully. Could it be that the reason our witness is pale, weak, and timid is because our wonder is weak and timid and pale. Maybe our words are few because our worship is small. Say, I'm convinced, I'm convinced dumbfoundedness spiritually is a beautiful thing and leads to sure-footedness and open-mouthedness. This is why I find this text so beautiful because yes, they were perplexed, astonished, trembling, and for a, for a little bit, they didn't say anything. But as they saw the, the evidence and the truth of the resurrection, they became wonderful witnesses. I would encourage you and invite you, church, stand in awe of the resurrected Christ. See the crucified Christ, risen, victorious. Know this, that your words will flow for Jesus when your eyes are fixed on Jesus. And this is the missional reality that we are under gladly that we are wonderful witnesses. So how about a quick review? Let's take one, can we? Based on Mark 16, one through eight, three realities we know are true. Christ is not dead. God is not done. And we are in all. Three realities that, that come to us from this chapter, that stand out to us. And I think they help us summarize really the, the big stay-at-home truth that we're gonna kind of wrap up with today. Here's kind of the, the essence of all we're saying, that Christ's resurrection is the surest reality upon which the world, the church's witness, and my worship rests. He has been raised indeed. So understand, all the realities in your life that are changing and adjusting, that you're maneuvering and navigating, they all rest on the one reality that never changes, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. His resurrection is the surest reality of every other reality in your life and in the world. Now, I want to take a minute, if I could, to help you get your arms around this text and this truth, these realities, in a very practical way. Just give me a few more minutes. Don't click pause. Don't stop. Hang with me. A few more minutes. Because we've dissected this text. We've looked at it and its realities. But I want us now for a few moments to digest it. 
Let's internalize this and apply this. You see, Christ invites you to believe him personally, to follow him personally, to be on mission with him personally. The resurrection is a very personal reality. Paul affirmed this in Philippians 3.10. Look at this verse in conclusion. When Paul declared that his his aim was to know Jesus. See the words that I may know him. And then look what he lists next. The power of his resurrection. That he may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul here really says that his, his goal by the power of the gospel is to know Jesus Christ. It's very personal. And this word here is an intensive form of the word knowledge. So he means he wants to know Christ personally, intimately, and the resurrection is the means by which that is possible. So church, understand that it's a relationship that truly defines every bit of your reality, a relationship with the risen Christ. So I implore you today, begin a relationship with Jesus or kindle that relationship with Jesus or continue that relationship with Jesus. Wherever you are on that spectrum, do not avoid a relationship with Jesus Christ. That relationship is possible because Christ has been raised from the dead. And today we celebrate once again the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is you can know Jesus because he is alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you take these thoughts from Mark 16 and would you cause people to move in one of three directions to either begin a relationship with you, to kindle one with you, or to continue one with you. I'm sure folks who are listening or watching are across that whole spectrum. God, I pray that they'll look at the evidence and they'll see that you're not done with them, and that there's a mission for them. And the Lord, we'll return to this relationship with you, which is really the summation of, of your resurrection, that you desire to know us personally. So God, thank you for what today means for every single person. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.